HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. I'm Mike Calameco from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, May 20th. This is the 65th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is the founder of Journey, and we will find out all about his journey very soon. But first, as I do on every show, I will start with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to embrace change. As we go through life, things change, from jobs to relationships to how we receive information and communicate. It's inevitable. And although it can be comforting to have a routine, we shouldn't be afraid of the new and different. It can be good and lead to bigger and better things. So don't fret when your usual practice gets a twist. Instead, enjoy the ride or the next chapter. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very excited to have my guest here. It is Anthony Rudolph. He is the founder of Journey, a new community of restaurant professionals to meet and share their skills through lectures, demos, events, classes, and roundtables. Anthony is also the co-founder of the Welcome Conference, a former director of operations for the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group, and a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. So welcome, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited to, to have you here and to learn about your background because I, I gave a very quick bio, but it's very impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess I'm sorry for the listeners at home, but... This is a torturous studio because there's a window right in front of me overlooking all of these people eating at Roberta's, and I'm just salivating with the food that's coming out right now. So it's a beautiful scenery. Thank you. Yes, um, it is cool, but 
you can stay after and, and have some pizza. That's a deal. Because yeah, <laughs> you just told me this is your first time out here. First time out here. That yeah. is, I'm I'm glad this this show has got you out here because Roberta's is awesome. Me as well. So, um, so how how did you get started? I mean, how did you end up at the Culinary Institute of America? And what was did you did you know you wanted to work in the restaurant industry? So it goes originally back to junior high, and um, I'm a proud manipulator of systems, and so essentially I had gone about every path forward to get out of traditional school in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, that my counselor just gave up. And he's like, there's really nothing else for you. And this is ninth grade, so I was, what, 15, 16 years old? And he said, you should really go to tech school. He goes, I don't care what you do, carpentry, um, you know, culinary arts, learn how to work on cars. You'll always have a job. School's not for you. It'll get you out of high school half a day. And um, essentially, he's just like, give up on school, learn a craft, and you'll always have a paycheck. Um, and so I, I took culinary arts. I wasn't interested in woodworking. I wasn't interested in working on automobiles. And I love to eat. So um, I took culinary arts. And I think what drove me to the CIA was my first real mentor. Um, and probably, you know, a big reason I'm here today was because of him. And his name's Mike McComb. And it was a, um, a Middle Bucks Institute of Technology. And we cooked half the day and learned learned to trade. And then the other half of the day, I'd go back to regular high school and take all of the all of the classes that I wasn't very fond of. And he was a Culinary Institute of America graduate. And um, he pushed us really hard to, to be better and work harder and pushed us to invest in ourselves and to go to the Culinary Institute of America. And there was a handful of us out of that class that went together to the CIA. Um, and so he was really the reason that I went. Otherwise, I probably would have done exactly what the counselor said and got a job. And I started working in restaurants at that moment when I was 15, uh, washing dishes and working my way up to being a, a cook. And I was originally aspiring to be a chef. And so... Okay. That's what I was going to ask. Were you going for front of the house or back? Because some people now go to cooking school just to get the experience. Uh, I think back back then, I'm thinking it was more uh, you go to cooking school because you want to be a chef. Very much so. Um, and just to put that in reference, when I was at the CIA, um, I think less than 5% of the students there had any desire to do anything else outside of cooking. Uh, whether that be a beverage professional or a dining room professional. And now that's upwards around like 25 to 30% uh, from the last time I spoke with them. So it's changed quite a bit. Um, and absolutely, I was a diehard cook in my teens, and I worked you know, 40, 50 hours a week while going to high school, um, and very much a kitchen mentality, um, and even the, the games you play with the dining room at that time. And, um, and it wasn't until I went to the, to the CIA, and it was the first class in the program then, it was called Stage, and essentially you served the bachelor students lunch. And it was buffet, or uh, more banquet style, so they didn't necessarily have a choice, but they got a three or four course meal, and it was, they called it Stage because it was up in the higher platform in Farkinson Hall. And um, we would serve them. And I just remembered being out there, and it was something about like the silly things of carrying plates and balancing and being elegant and trying to not be clumsy and drop five things and do this all while people are laughing at you, especially the bachelor students who are trying to sabotage you. Um, and to, to run through this gauntlet publicly was something thrilling for me. Um, <laughs> and so that led into then, I, I guess a lot of it is instant gratification that you get too in, in your work which I think is really important. And you get to see the smiles and you get the thank yous and you get to hear the laughs and the, the, watch the people enjoy the food. Um, and it's really addicting. And it's a hard thing to break from once you get to experience it. And in that moment, I changed, I changed career paths for me and stopped cooking 
as a part-time job that I needed to, to pay for things through school and started becoming a waiter. And I worked as a busboy and at a local Italian restaurant up at the, in High Park and just waited tables while I was in college and then went on and got my bachelor's degree. Um, and I haven't cooked professionally since, uh, since college. Wow. That's that's a great story. So so the schooling changed you. So then after after school, and let me just note, I have never been up to the CIA, and I'm going soon for this Menus of Change conference they're doing. And I've always wanted to see the campus, and and I'm just so I'm very excited about that. It's beautiful. Yes. It's really it's you're spoiled. It's that beautiful. Yeah, I can imagine. So I'm excited about that. So what was your first job after school? So when I graduated, um, I moved back. I'm from outside of Philadelphia in Bucks County. And so I moved back home um, and started working with the Hilton Hotel Group at Doubletree Hotel on Broad Street in Philly. Um, you know, it was, it was the, I think you just spend a ton of money in school and you have to validate that existence by landing some title or some managerial job, um, something that gives you the worth of mm-hmm. devoting four years of your life, which was completely the wrong mentality. And um, I learned that quickly. And so they, Hilton Hotel was willing to give me a title and it was like assistant operations manager to food and beverage. I mean, it was something ridiculous. Sounds impressive. For a 21-year-old <laughs> kid to have, which is silly. And, um, and so I took that job and not really know what I was getting into. I had never worked in fine dining. I had never worked um, in a large organization before. And I spent 10 months with them. And what it came down to was that food and beverage in that hotel in particular was just an amenity for the rooms division. And so when you devote your life to something and the place where you work, you're second, third, or fourth on the priority list in terms of uh, the level of attention or resources that get given. Um, it's not necessarily thrilling to show up every day. And so I needed to be in an environment that provided that was all that we did. Um, and so restaurants, standalone restaurants, obviously provide that. And so I then decided to move to New York. And the true story behind moving to New York um, wasn't to chase the Big Apple and like this is where the mecca of restaurants was. And um, it was an ex-girlfriend. I was going to say it was for a girl. Yeah. <laughs> isn't it always? Um, it's always for love. And, um, and so she was working at John George. And ah. so there's only one place to apply, and that's where she was working. Um, and so I applied, and I came up foolishly with my silly long title that I had at 21 years old and sat down with Patrick Juanini, who was the general manager at the time, and um, sat there. He says, okay, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a maitre d'. And he looked at me and said, are you crazy? You're 21 years old. What are you, what are you thinking? Um, I said, okay, well, what am I then? And he said, well, you start at the bottom in the dining room, and you work your way up, and maybe one day you'll get to do it. And I said, great, when can I start? He said, two weeks. I said, fantastic. So I went back, gave my two weeks notice to Hilton Hotel, was still in Philadelphia. Um, my friend in, 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 from my hometown was going to move up here with me. Um, so we started looking for apartments, couldn't find one. And so I commuted from Bucks County to Jean George for a little over two months, probably two and a half months from October to the end of December um, as a front waiter at Jean George. And again, back to the love thing, had it been a job that you know, the, the level of commitment to do that is um, maybe not as high as it would be for love to drive. I was driving two hours a day. Well, yeah, I, I, I think. But I was thinking as, as you were telling your story that you're just driven. You know, you, you knew what you, you know, going after it with, with love as 
part of the situation. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> That's how I interpreted it, but yeah. maybe wrong. Um, no, but you, you, you know, I love the starting at the bottom and working your way up, which I think it is the way to to grow in any business. It's the only way. I mean, especially in this where, you know, the the the, the more you grow and the the higher you are um, on an organizational chart in terms of manager or general manager, director of operations, the more you need to be able to relate to the people that you work with. And in this industry that's so fast paced, so hard hitting, unless you've done what they've done and understand what they're going through, you can't truly empathize with them when it's 7.30 and you know 40 people walk in and you crush the kitchen or you quadruple seat a station if you've never been in one of those situations or both of those situations, you can't truly understand what they're going through. And right. so you need to work from the bottom to the top. Yes. And my background is, uh, it's a little similar, but I have a lot of restaurant experience. Not, I didn't set out to be a publicist. That kind of just happened by accident after going to cooking school, after working front of the house, back of the house. And, but I love now that I work with restaurants and I get it because I, I know the positions and I know what they're going through. Yes. You know, it's hard. It's a very hard industry. Yeah, very rewarding. Very rewarding, and you have to be passionate about it, um, and I think you are. So so you were at John George, and then you moved your way up, and you then called up Thomas Keller and said, hey. <laughs> so it was, I, was with, I was with John George for four years, um, and I left as a service director. And um, it came down to we, we came right after Michelin was released. That was the first year that Michelin came out. Um, and we had just been reviewed by the New York Times and received four stars in 2006. And um, it was just time. I think it was natural, and I'm a big believer in leaving on top and you know, not, not drawing things out. And it was, it was just the right time. I think my impact, I had a solid impact there, and I received and learned a ton. Um, and I was actually at a friend's wedding, uh, my best friend's wedding, and he was working at Per Se at the time. And so I got to meet a couple of the people, and um, turns out that's where the first interview started. Um, and I called them and said, hey, I would love to come over if you have anything. And they had a, a maitre d' position open. And so I started there in 2006 as the maitre d'. And, uh, at the French Laundry? No, at Per Se. Oh, at Per Se. At Per okay. Se. Yeah, I just moved across the circle. I, yeah, no, I wasn't sure. Yeah. Across the country, across the circle. Across the circle. That's my neighborhood, so I, I, I get it exactly. I spent 11 <laughs> years on that circle. Um, and, so, and so I started off as a maitre d', worked there for, you know, for three years in that role, and then general manager and then director of operations overseeing, per se, in the two Bouchon bakeries. What would you say is... Uh, the biggest lesson or a lesson you learned from working for John George or Thomas Keller? Um, so from Thomas, I think, um, you know, he, he, he isn't one to directly give advice in, you know, this is how you should do it, or this is what you should do. He's, he's amazing at framing why you should do these things or why you should think about it this way. And I think the most profound impact for me working with him was, um, how big picture he thinks he he doesn't he is completely aware of the day-to-day micro details um, but thinks about them all in the context of what impact will this have on the industry in such a broad stroke of 10 years 15 years 20 years 30 years that it's kind of hard to 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 think that way Um, and that was that for me was the most profound so when and, and how that would play out in daily interactions you know when you're when you're coaching or training or mentoring um, 
a kitchen server, a new employee, you know, the way you coach and train them um, impacts how they're going to coach and train when they're a manager, you know, five, ten years down the road. And so when you think about it in that context, it's not let me just solve and put this fire out immediately, which may require many different tools at your disposal, um, but rather, you know, how can I put this out or teach or coach in a manner that sets this person up so when they're in this situation five to ten years from now, they have an example and a role model to follow from. And Thomas is always thinking about things that way. Yeah, that's smart. He's smart. I'm a big fan, of course. Yeah, and he probably has the next 30 years of the industry mapped out for us. <laughs> Bet he does. Okay, so we're going to take a little break here. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Anthony Rudolph, the founder of Journey and the co-founder of the Welcome Conference. During the break, I said to, to Anthony how I, I traveled across the country solo to dine at the French Laundry, and he looked at me, really? I said, yep, I did. <laughs> and I love Thomas Keller. It's amazing. I would do the same. I'd fly there now. Okay. Well, it's I'm starting, starting a trend. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Journey. How did you come up with the idea? What What is Journey? So Journey... Um what we're building is a community of restaurant professionals, um, and our mission is to empower and educate the next generation of restaurant professionals. And, you know, how I came through it was being in on both sides of the equation of a young professional, thirsty and hungry for th- tools that I'll need in my career, um, and then also being on the managerial level of having to provide for thirsty, hungry young professionals that need and want things um, and that are, are willing to you know, go to culinary school and graduate schools for them now um, and commit those funds. But then once you enter the industry, there's a great lack of resources that, um, that, that needs to be built. Resources need to be built for young professionals. And so if you look at it from a cook or a waiter or a sommelier, um, you know, what you learn is what you encounter on a daily basis. Um, but that's not necessarily the tools that you need for the future. So your access to skills like human resources, legal, accounting, simple things like cash flow management, um, how to write and read a P&L, um, down to affordable and accessible wine knowledge and spirit knowledge and managerial and leadership knowledge. And there just aren't great places for that now. And so, um, you know, we endeavor to bring together current practicing professionals. Um, so we call it those who can teach. So people that are currently doing in the industry, 
um, come and teach a one-hour to two-hour class on something that they're excellent at and share that with the greater population of restaurant professionals. I love it. Thank you. Thanks. So you... You have your have you launched or you're launching soon? No, we're launching. Okay, <laughs> um, we're on the cusp, and so um, the big thing um, was that this needs to be um, in person, and it needs to be the right place. And so we recently signed a lease, and so we'll be doing some more announcements over the next couple of weeks. But we signed a lease in the Flatiron. Uh, we have about a 3,500 square foot um, loft space nice. that we're starting construction on today. As a matter of fact, we had a walkthrough with the, uh, the general contractor. And um, it's going to have a 40-seat classroom, uh, 12- to 14-seat smaller, more intimate conference room for wine tastings and cocktail tastings and just general roundtables and discussions. And then the community aspect of it is we've reserved about 1,500 square feet to just have a space to hang out um, we're having an amazing designer, Elizabeth Roberts, Roberts um, of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Roberts Design, who's here in Brooklyn, um, who is known to do really beautiful high-end residential. Um, and so I wanted the feel to be very home and comfort that um, and rich and luxurious in a way that we don't necessarily get to engage with except for places, except for at work. Um, and so it was important to me that the environment was almost Soho House-ish, uh, but specifically just for restaurant professionals and at our living wages, a price point that's affordable for us. So that's what we're building. And so we'll launch sometime in the summer. That's so cool. I mean, I signed up on your newsletter as a part of Journey to get updates, but just I didn't realize you were going to have a venue. Oh, yeah. And that sounds amazing. I think it has to be. You know, so this is what I've toyed with over the last two years is obviously um, this will ultimately it all ends up online and it all ends up in a resource library um, of all these skills where restaurant professionals aren't don't have a barrier of time or place. So if you're not living in New York City or, you know, you need to learn something at three o'clock in the morning, you'll have access to it 24 hours a day to everything that happens in there. And um, we aim to live stream everything that happens over the next, you know, six months in the classroom. So you can access it without actually being in New York. Um, but the online idea, which is what a lot of my investors just wanted me to do, just build an online platform, um, wasn't really compelling to me because I'm not great at any of those skill sets, for one. And for two, I think as a restaurant of, of, of I mean, a community of restaurant professionals, we don't engage online much. Um, most of us are fearful of email. Um, <laughs> you know, I think if you just look at the tools and the way that um, reservation systems and um, all of the tools that we use have been so slow to... Mm -hmm. uh, grow compared to the rest of the world is because we're also very slow to adapt to technology. And so it was very important that we had a place where we could look eye to eye and cling a glass of wine or a beer and sit and talk and have a cup of coffee and it not just right. be you log into some portal and have access to all this stuff. Like I think that's that's down the road. But first, I think I think we still need to engage as people. So is there a membership fee like to join as a member or is it different classes maybe someone can just pay to go to a certain class can i go as a publicist good question radio host so there there there's no membership fee to start um we don't know where that will end up in the in the plans but there is no it's a free membership um all the classes will be in the range of 30 to 40 dollars per class about an hour to two hour per class um but average out at that and um the only vetting is you will have to sign up to become a member through our membership platform um and that will require you to validate in some way, some playful way. We're not going to 
you know, request paychecks or anything. But um, it's important that we maintain the integrity that it is restaurant professionals in there asking restaurant focused questions mm -hmm. rather than how do I make this at home or how do I throw a dinner party for six people, which aren't bad questions, but there are you know, 50 magazines and 5,000 <laughs> websites that help answer all those questions. And there's really none for us that help answer, you know, what do I need to do when I'm, you know, adding an addition to the kitchen or building out, or I'm now going to start doing private events. What templates do I need? How does that change my expediting system? All these questions that aren't really great for a home user, but are things that we need. Um, so we'll vet it through a simple questionnaire, um, but it will be only for restaurant professionals. Great. I already said I love it, but I love it. Thanks. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, let's talk about the Welcome Conference, because that's, I mean, it's correlated, <laughs> I, would, I would think. And last year, I got sold out. I was waitlisted, hoping to get in, but I didn't make it. But I have my ticket this year, Great. Um, and I'm very excited. I know it's on June 15th. That's right. Up. So what is the Welcome Conference for people who don't know? I mean, similarly, it's, it's really all about community. And I think it's something that I'm very driven towards and certainly Will Gutera, who's my partner, um, is also very driven by. Um, and it's actually a, a nice romantic story is how it, how it all started. Um, love again. Love again with, with Will and I. Um, we were fierce competitors fierce to the type that, you know, maybe if you saw each other at a party, you'd have to say hi, but you were always trying to outdo the other person and your marker was, you know, I'm going to beat him and he's going to beat me and that, that whole boring game. And we got forced to face each other at a Relay and Chateau Congress in Biarritz and the day ended and we were two, I think, of the only, um, you know, New York City American restaurants that were there and we hung out. And we got past the competitiveness and formed a friendship and, you know, kind of decided that, hey, instead of like trying to outdo each other, why don't we help each other and just form a relationship amongst ourselves to share and, um, you know, kind of share best practices and what we're going through and struggles. And so that's where it started. And that was back in 2009. And then our relationship, you know, just grew from then. And I think the realization is, hey, this has really helped us. Um, could, we, could it help more people and could it help us by continuing to grow this community of dining room professionals? And you can see what it does for the culinary community, um, how their rapid rate of evolution in their craft um, has happened through these forums and these discussions and conferences and sharing um, just elevates the whole game. And, you know, hospitality professionals, specifically dining room, not beverage, don't have a natural mechanism to spend time with one another. Um, sommeliers have wine tastings weekly that they can go to, but you know, a, a dining room manager um, or operator, there's no natural thing that happens on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis where you can go hang out. Um, so we'll create one once a year to share, inspire, and connect all around hospitality. All around hospitality. Who are some of the speakers you have coming up? Ooh, we've, uh, so for this year... Um, it's really exciting. Last year was awesome. I mean, we had so much fun, and the day turned out magically, and um, we try not to control too much, so we let them... There's a lot of openness to to them creating. I did watch some of the talks online. I know Rita Jamay. Yes. From last year. Yes. So that was cool. They were accessible. Yeah, they were very. Um, so, so this year, um, of course, we have the king who inspired us all, Danny Meyer, uh -huh. um, will be speaking this year. Um, but there's a lot of uh, people that 
sadly, not a lot of people have heard of, and we hope to bring them to the forefront. One, um, one that I'm very, very have become connected to is Bill Golderer of uh, Broad Street Ministry in Philadelphia. And we happened to, I, I worked right down the street and didn't know about it. Um, and so what he did is he's a minister and it is a church and he took over the church and realized that there was a need for um, the homeless community to have resources such as food. And so instead of um, a traditional soup kitchen, what they did is they took out all the pews in the church and they put in round tables and they put a host at the door and they put waiters in. And when the homeless people would come in in need of food, um, they would come in and they would be greeted as if they were in a restaurant. Any of their belongings would be taken care of. They'd be sat at the table. They had a three course menu with options. They had waiters. And his essence was really to bring dignity to a dining experience for a population of people that probably doesn't receive a lot of dignity on a daily basis. And what this has flourished into is actually a moment of care where now they can have um, social workers and doctors and therapists be the waiters. And so through the act of serving and providing food and care, they're also providing another layer of care, which is, you know, Jim seems strange this week. Is he taking his medication? Does he need everything? Is he going through struggles? And they can go through this assessment process and get the community in. Um, and so now they're, they've, they do seven meals a week, and they're growing into more, um, and ultimately they want to be breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So that's one story that will get to come forward you know, through this that, that may not have as large of a voice. Nice. Um, Tim Harris, who is an adult with Down syndrome, um, which is something that's become very close to both Will and I, um, as we helped open a theater in Ridgefield, Connecticut called the Prospector Theater, which is a 501c3 non-for-profit movie theater um, that also has a restaurant and a cafe that has the sole mission of employing and training adults with disabilities, which currently have an 80% unemployment rate uh, for their population. And right now on staff, they have 99 employees, about to break 100, of which 70 have a developmental disability. So autism, Down syndrome, um, and they're working concessions, box office, and they put them through training programs to teach them real-world skills so that they can then be employable at other places and grow above and beyond bagging groceries um, and, you know, carts and kind of the, yeah. the jobs that they get relegated to um, because there's not a lot of resources for them to learn either. Um, and so there's a nice parallel there. And so Tim Harris owns a restaurant in Albuquerque, New Mexico called Tim's Place. And he's going to light at the stage. He's amazing. So he'll be speaking that day. Sarah Robbins, who's the chief operating officer for 21C Hotels, which is a boutique hotel. I've heard of them, I think. Where are they? Um, all throughout, mostly through the, through the south. The south. Is it part of a hotel? It's a hotel, museum, and restaurant. That, one of my friends wrote about that. I think one of my friends, Layla, who's probably listening. Hi, Layla. <laughs> yes, I think she wrote about that. I, um it sounded familiar. Yeah. Um, so they have an amazing philosophy cool. of just saying yes. Like they say yes and then figure it out. Um, the alternate of that of also saying yes is uh, Thomas Cox, who's the general manager of the Claridge's Hotel in London, which is one of the um, standard bearers of excellence throughout the hospitality industry for decades and decades and decades. Um, so he'll right. be speaking. Well, I'm looking forward. It's coming up soon couple weeks yeah very exciting now before we take a break let me ask you the question that i had from last week i had on tony abuganan he's the original modern mixologist based in vegas he wanted to know 
how you would include or integrate a successful bar program when developing a new restaurant concept, uh, noting that a lot of times the bar is an afterthought. So I think the answer is right there. I mean, I think it just not need, just don't can't make be an it afterthought. an afterthought. <laughs> you know, I, every single element of a restaurant is is a design, and I think if it's an afterthought, I think the question is why did that operator or a restaurateur not care about the bar program enough to give it enough thought to do it well? Um, and is there something that they need or could do? But um, yeah, I, I just think it doesn't. I'm sorry for if that's a late no, answer. No, no, I get it. I get it. Um, I think it's a good question. Good answer. We're good. Okay. Okay. So we're going to take one more break here. We're going to come back and do my speed round game, talk some industry news. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. This is All in the Industry on Heritage, Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest is Anthony Rudolph, the founder of Journey. It's time for my speed round game. Anthony, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, I'm going to name two things. You pick your preference. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? In. Wine, beer, or cocktail? None of the above. Okay. I'm a recovering alcoholic, nine years. High five. High five. Me too. Fantastic. <laughs> so, um, in that case, I would probably take the um, sparkling apple, apple cider. I'll do that. I would too. Maybe I should add that into my game. But I've had non drinkers on before. Somebody once said that milk. Melissa Holm. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, really? Okay. If I had a piece of cake with it, I'd take the milk. Okay. I'm with you on that too. Cool. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. I hate choices. Small plates or large plates? Small. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. That one you thought about. The other ones you're like, boom. I don't love either. Okay. So that was my that was my thought. Process. Okay. No problem. A few more. Per se of the French laundry? Can't answer that. Okay, I'll answer that. You don't, I mean, every, it's, there's the no first, rules. So the French Laundry was where it was born, but per se is where I spent seven years and, and tons of hours and blood, sweat, and tears. So per se. <laughs> Very good. Good reasoning. Mm-hmm. Orange or dark orange? <laughs> um, burnt orange. U21 <laughs> specifically is the journey orange. I was going to do just orange or orange, and yeah, I, I've, I've learned you like the orange. color. It's a good color. Thanks. 
cheese plate or dessert? Both. Manhattan or Brooklyn or Philadelphia? Brooklyn. Awesome. That's the game. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so let's talk some industry news. So today, Pete Wells reviewed Javelina in the New York Times, a new restaurant, a new Tex-Mex restaurant in Gramercy Park. He slammed it. I mean, he, he really, it was, it reminded people of the Guy Fieri re- review he had done where he just, um, he had a lot of backhand compliments. Um, he gave it no stars and said it was fair. Um, what'd you think of this? Or have you been to this restaurant? I haven't. No. Um, what do I think? Well, you know, I think that's a hard, it's a hard question to ask. Um, so let's say it's all part of the ecosystem, right? So what do I think of the New York Times or any critics or reviews or the process? It's all part and parcel for the ecosystem. And so what I think is that balance is important for anybody in the industry and that you take the four-star reviews as much as you give weight to the negative um, Yelpers or open table, table feedback and that you continue to do your work and believe in what you do. Um, you know, I I, um, I don't feel feel good for them in, in the work that they put into it because it was somebody's dream, it was somebody's effort, um, and so whether or not it appealed to Pete Wells, who certainly has the forum and the platform and has earned the role of and is doing his job. He's not doing anything outside of his job. He's doing his job and. That's what he's there to do. But that was somebody's work and dream, and just because it wasn't great for him doesn't mean it's not great for some people. Um, and so I feel for them. Yeah. I didn't mean to ask you such a hard question off this, but I, it's true. It is hard. And I found – I was planning to go to this restaurant, actually. Actually, I tried to go. Um, it was a rainy night. I was in the neighborhood, and I was solo, which is – I do my solo thing. I went in at about 6 o'clock. And they told me that I couldn't eat at the bar, um, and so I asked for a table, and it wasn't busy yet. And they said they were fully uh, committed until about ten, which and they were they just were they just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, just the the hospitality. Um, so when I was reading this review, and and I've, I I kind of I was like in a sense relating by my little experience, and then I had this moment where I was. I don't know. I laughed at something he wrote, and then I was like wondering, well, is this? I hate to say it, but he's like, is this necessary in a sense? Like, he's such a great writer, and he's telling a great story. But I feel for the restaurant, mm-hmm. like, and I didn't even have a great experience from them. But I just was had this moment where I just, I just was thinking about reviews. You know, when yeah. you when you slam a place, and I get it's his job, and I do think he always tells a great story, and. This place, I, th- I think they they probably have some work to do, but um, so, I don't know. That was my take. I think that's a good point. I, you know, my viewpoint on this is I am more restaurant professional than I am consumer, average consumer than I am food critic or writer by far. And so I, I don't ever really find joy in somebody else's pain because I'm on their side. That's my peer. You know, whether or not I agree with how they've built their restaurant, I, I'm not saying I don't. I've never been there. But whether or not we disagree from an experiential side, they're more of a peer to me than the average consumer is or than the food critic is. So I can't misalign myself 
by taking joy in their misery because I wouldn't want them to also take joy in my misery, which is coming at some point down the road. You know, whenever it arrives, it's going to come. Someone's going to say something nasty about Journey and, you know, write something. It's just the nature of the world. Um, And so I would just hope that my peers don't take any joy in anything that I go through and I'm not going to take anything in theirs because I can relate to them more than I can relate to the critic or the food writer who needs to earn their paycheck by getting paper sold and clicks happen. Right. Um, and so I, I, I tend to just align with, with my peers first more than I do the satisfaction of a consumer finding joy in that or, you know, somebody writing a piece, um, yeah. to have the piece written. Yeah. And I hope, I mean, he didn't in the review, he, he, gave reasons why he didn't like the food, the service, lots of things. Um, but I would hope what comes out of it is they can improve upon them and succeed. I mean, if they agree with him. If it, they do. It's still their dream. Yeah, true. You know, they don't, I mean, they still have to say, is this what I want to wake up and do every day? And if what they want to wake up and do a day every day is exactly the experience that they gave to him, why should they compromise what they want to do every day because somebody else had a different opinion? They're the ones that have to do the work. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Okay, let's talk for a minute about this Grub Street article. Six brand new cocktail bars where the bartenders are really in charge by Robert Simonson. I think there was also a piece in the New York Times today that I picked up on basically on the same kind of idea that there's there's a lot of new cocktail bars happening with great people um, such as Leenda in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, which is uh, you got Julie Reiner and she's partnered with Clover Club her former bartender, um, Ivy Mix, was a very appropriate name. Uh, and then the show before me is The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio. And uh, Damon Bolte, who's the host, he's partnered with um, a few people we know in the industry. Well, Daniel Krieger and um, Noah Burnhamoff from Mile End. And they have a place called Grand Army, which opened in Boreham Hill. Did I say that? Boreham Hill, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and, da- and uh, Damon had been working at Prime Meat. So I think there's this this trend going on with more bartenders opening places. And um, I think there's a, there's a it's exciting. I don't want to do, uh, do. Do you want to comment on this? Or are you? Um, is, it, is, it, is it? I mean, I think it's exciting that um, professionals are finding, you know, opening up their own places. Um, I think it's, you know, I don't know if, uh, if it's a trend, but. You know, I mean, it was the same with chefs over the last 20 years, owning and operating their own restaurants. And so it's natural that bartenders do that. And I think it's important. There's a lot of professions within this industry that don't have an outlet like that. Um, you know, where do pastry chefs go? You know, how many how many bakeries can there be? How many cakes and pies? Like where, what is the natural path for a pastry chef to be an entrepreneur? What is the natural path for a sommelier to be an entrepreneur? Um, you know, chefs have carved theirs, restaurateurs have carved theirs, bartenders are, you know, as you're stating, have, have carved theirs. And I think there's, I think what we'll see over the next 15 to 20 years, um, if not even shorter than that, is all of our individual f- crafts within inside of a restaurant or the food and beverage industry, niching out their own path. I mean, like Dominique Anzel mm-hmm. um, is a great example. But before that was Francis Payard. It's not the first, but it's it's far more challenging for certain roles within a restaurant to become an entrepreneur and owner. Um, so a plug for journey, hopefully we'll be able to help you do that. Yeah, no, on the pastry end, I work with Tumbador chocolate and Jean-Francois Bonnet used to work at Danielle. A lot of people that was like, ask him 
why'd you decide to go into chocolate? He's like, well, once you get to Danielle and you're sort of like, it's like you're at a plateau in a sense. So I guess the choice is you open your own place or you make chocolate. Right. (laughs) But I was also thinking with Danny Meyer too and the example of like he would say he would open other restaurants so he would have a place for his team to go or other other chefs and restaurateurs have said that before and I was thinking similarity with this and bartenders now mm-hmm. so well we'll see what comes of other other parts of the industry okay we're going to take one more break we're going to come back I'm going to do my solo dining experience this is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience of the week, which this week is brought to you by our friends at One House Hospitality Headhunters, who you can follow on Facebook. They're also on Twitter at one underscore house and Instagram at one house. And that's spelled O-N-E-H-A-U-S. Here's the rundown of my solo dinner at Lupolo. The location is... 835 Avenue of the Americas at 29th Street in Manhattan. The concept, a casual Portuguese restaurant. The chef, George Mendez of Michelin-starred Aldea. Why did I go? Because George is an excellent chef, and this new place is practically designed for solo diners with its vast horseshoe bar. My experience. I popped in on a weekday night, took a seat at the bar, I spotted George in the dining room and we caught up a bit before he got back to the open kitchen. Everything on the menu looked great. I asked the bartender for some recommendations and he was helpful. What did I get? I had the snapper crew, which was red snapper crudo with coconut milk, kefir lime broth, fermented serrano, and bene beans. And the grilled whole Portuguese sardines with blistered pepper salad. And I also had a dessert. had a fancy name, Paudelo Quejo Zimbro, which means soft Portuguese sponge cake with sheep's milk, cheese, quince marmalade, and kaffir lime ice. I also had an espresso. My take. I love the snapper crudo. It was a sensational combination. And the sardines were really flavorful, but they were a bit hard to eat because of the bones. And I had this, the sponge cake was uh, light and fluffy, and the cheese was really unbelievable. The scene, singles, couples, and groups. Perfect for anyone who's in Midtown, whether it be for work, shopping at Macy's, or a game at Madison Square Garden. Interesting tidbit. The name Lupolo is the Portuguese word for hops. The restaurant is inspired by the famed breweries of Lisbon and offers an extensive menu of craft beers. Personal fun fact. The reason I had dessert was in the name of research, really, because I'm working with a Brazilian bakery called Padoca, which is opening on the Upper East Side, they have a dessert by similar name, and I wanted to see how it compared, but now that I've had it, I know it's very different. The cost, $49, not including tax and tip. 
Would I go back? Yes, absolutely. The website is lupelonyc.com. Okay, so Anthony, it's time for the final question. So I'm away next week, but the week after, I'm having on Camila Marcus Siegel, the Director of Business Development for Union Square Hospitality Group. I believe you know her. You told me you know her. Mm -hmm. So what would you like to ask her? So I was going to ask her a question about shuffleboard because we're playing next week, but um, I'm going to ask Camilla, um, what is the first class that you're going to teach with Journey? Awesome. I might have to sign up for it after she announces cool. what the class is. <laughs> and um, for those of you listening, thank you. Um, and Journey, unlike the band, is spelled with two E's at the end. J-O-U-R-N-E-E. Um, just wanted to make sure that didn't get missed. Yes. No, I'm glad you, you stated that. Thanks. Because your journey, well, I don't know, your journey is still, could be two E's. Yes. But I'm... Um, Excited about it, and thank, thank you. you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Happy to be out here. I've been talking to Anthony Rudolph, the founder of Journey with Two E's, and co-founder of the Welcome Conference coming up on June 15th. You can find them online at yourjourney.com and on social media at Anthony Rudolph, at yourjourney, and at welcome underscore NYC. My social media is at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR at all industry, at heritage underscore radio. My Facebook page is all in the industry, and my website's BayerPublicRelations.com. As a reminder, all of our shows are archived on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on Stitcher and iTunes, so you can download our episodes as podcasts and listen to us anywhere, anytime. Now, as I said, I'm away next week, so I will be back on Wednesday, June 3rd at 4 p.m. with another live show. Thanks always to my engineer, Jack. And thanks to my guest, Anthony. It's been fun. Thank you. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, get-